That was Ethan Lineone playing the piano, the song of his own composition titled Low Down Boogie Woogie. Ethan's artistic manifestations are that of American music that has become nearly extinct in spite of having been an important link in the chain of the evolution of American music at the beginning of the 20th century, with roots in the great American ragtime genre. Ethan, originally from Connecticut, is a fantastic pianist in his mid-30s based in St. Louis. During his musical trajectory, he stumbled upon Boogie Woogie and Barrel House Blues, two less-known genres within the American repertoire today. Line One has become one of the country's leading exponents on Barrel House Blues, playing at important national and international festivals and giving seminars about this musical gem which is on the brink of oblivion. His notable performances include La Roque-Brou International Boogie Woogie Festival in France, United Kingdom Boogie Festival in England, Pianissimo Piano Festival in Germany, Brooklyn Folk Festival in New York, and the University of Chicago Folk Festival. One of his more notable domestic seminars include the 2018 West Coast Ragtime Festival in Sacramento, California, where Ethan presented his seminar Lost Traditions in Barrel House Blues, Texas and the Deep South. Join us for an interesting and educational interview as part of Cultural Cues historical anthology series with musical expert Ethan Lineone as he takes us on a journey into his world and his love for music, namely Barrel House Blues. My name is Napoleon and this is Cultural Cue, the point of convergence of art, culture, and society. Thank you for being with us today, Ethan Leinwand. I really appreciate you sharing about yourself and your music. I would love to learn where it all comes from. Thank you for being on the show. Well, it's my pleasure to be here. I'm looking forward to having a good talk about Barrel House Blues and all that good stuff. I'll be honest with you. I had never heard about Barrel House Blues until I saw your videos. I didn't even know Barrel House Blues was a thing. Well, I don't think that's that uncommon, and I would be surprised if most people listening, if not every person listening, is, is like you, has never heard of it. From the little, little research that I've done, it seems like it was a link between two very important types of music, or maybe kind of like a passage. Yeah, they say, like, so one way people describe it is they say it's the link between ragtime music, which came before, which is, you know, like the people consider like the first great American music and then with Boogie Woogie, which is sort of the father of rock and roll. It's like the, 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 the driving piano you hear in little Jerry Lee Lewis and such, that's, that's a Boogie Woogie piano. So it's this really important link that sort of connects the earliest American music with the great 
rock and roll, the ultimate American music. So it, it really is an important part of, of American music. It's worth sharing and talking about. It is. It's kind of, it's trouble. The trouble with it is to describe it, you have to use all these other terms that people never heard of, like ragtime and boogie woogie and all these things. So you really got to, you really got to go all the way down the rabbit hole. Now, the first time I heard you play was during the last West Coast Ragtime Festival, and it was a, an, an online festival. I thought it was fascinating. It was hours and hours of ragtime music. I personally love ragtime. And I remember hearing your, your music. It was ragtime, but it definitely had a different feel to it. It wasn't like everyone else's ragtime, and that's definitely what caught my attention. Can you speak a little to that? Well, yeah. I mean, and firstly, I'm, I'm glad they have me. A lot of those ragtime festivals, people who love ragtime really love ragtime and they don't get a lot of chances to hear it. So when they can, they, they really want it to be ragtime. So to be accepted in the, in, the, in the ragtime community means a lot to me. The music that I play is the blues. It, it comes a little bit later. It's a little more improvisational. I guess there's like a folksier element. It's a little, it, it can be more raucous. Plenty of people play some raucous ragtime, but it tends to be less structured, less harmonically complex, and more about rhythms and rhythm variations and things like that. So the overall quality comes across as different. And Barrel House Blues gets sort of stuck. I say this a lot. Like in Europe, there's boogie woogie festivals, and in the States, there's ragtime festivals. And when I play the, the Barrel House, for ragtime people, it's usually too bluesy. And for boogie-woogie people, it's way too ragtimey, And so it just gets stuck in the middle. So I'm glad to be accepted by anyone. I love that explanation, actually. Thanks. I think about it a lot because other than, like, say, uh, Carl Sonny Leyland, who really is rooted in barrelhouse blues and then plays, plays around a lot, there's just not much of a, there's no infrastructure. There's not really much of a community. You're just kind of all alone in this thing that you have discovered and love. Can I ask you your age? I am 37. 37. You are relatively young. How does a 37-year-old, and, and even younger than that, how did you become familiar with this music? It's not like it was playing on the radio. No, it's sort of like it was, it's just been my journey, I guess. Well, it started, I took piano lessons as a little kid, eight-year-old, 13, and I quit piano lessons as a kid, just like everybody else. I really loved it. I sort of like had discovered composition and I was just developing my own relationship with it. So I kept, I kept at the piano, always trying to express myself in some way or another. Sort of came up that way with the piano. And then by the time I got to college, I did hear someone play blues. And then a little while later, after college, I moved to New Orleans for a year and I was teaching music to little kids and I was started getting exposed to that kind of piano style and I just was really falling for it and then so by this point I'm like 24 24 I still I wasn't a performer yet I just kind of did play piano in my own way and then it was like around 25 that I discovered boogie woogie on YouTube and a couple of people had said the word over the last like three months leading up to it so what is this music and when I got on YouTube I just just fell in love with it I was looking for like two things out of music. I was looking for a complete statement on the piano where, you know, you didn't need anything else, a solo pianist, a solo pianistic type music that I could do by myself. And I also wanted it to exist somewhere. Like I felt like on the composition stuff I was doing, I was like, well, where does this go? I mean, where does it belong? There's no space for it. But this music, you could picture it in any bar. 
anywhere and it would just be so fun. So that sort of started the journey of it. I agree. It is very fun. And it's, uh, I, I think your explanation is thorough and very heartfelt. Thank you. Definitely thorough. So where, where are you from? Where is, where is Ethan from originally? Yeah, I'm from Middletown, Connecticut, just in the middle of Connecticut. Do you still live there? No, I live in St. Louis now. I live in St. Louis, Missouri. So my trip, my, my travels, born and raised in Connecticut around 25 or four. I was in New Orleans for a year. Then I moved to New York for six years. And New York is where I, I started playing out. I, I had just started playing Boogie Woogie and was like really falling for it. And I was at a party at a friend of mine's house. And uh, there was a piano there. And for the first time in my life, I was going to be that guy who sat down at the piano. And my friends had to still cajole me. But when I did, it was like, wow, this is super fun. This is what I want to do, just play, play piano for people. Like I didn't think before that that I was a necessarily a piano player. I wasn't sure what I was as a musician, but that kind of sealed it. And it actually, there was someone there who was building a piano bar, literally. So six months later, I got a call. Someone was like, I was at this party, you played piano. Can you play our soft opening? Wow, this is amazing. So so then like next thing I know, I'm like playing four nights a week, four hour gigs every night out of nowhere. So I just, just got to practice and play and really like start diving more, more into it. So that was six years in New York before really deciding to move to St. Louis. And that's a whole other story about the journey of my discovery of Barrel House Blues and what it meant and what it means to me. What a great story. It sounds like you've had a, a really good run with music up until now. <laughs> oh yeah. Well, yeah, no, everyone's run music was good up until now. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I think what we're going through, I, I want to believe personally that it's, it's temporary. Yeah, I mean, everyone amongst my circle, people people are fantasizing about, oh, when we can come back, everyone's thinking it's going to be this roaring 20s again. We'll see. We'll see if people want to take off their pajama pants after all this. I, uh, that's one thing I'm not looking forward to, but, but I do like, <laughs> social, I like social contact. I do. <laughs> yeah, I, I like playing for people and feeding off of it and, um, and just, you know, the, just the, the one-off conversations and the brief moments you share with people. I mean, that's, that's all life is, right? Right. I miss breathing the same air as other people. I didn't mind that yeah. before. <laughs> that's can be a problem now. You said you started with piano at around eight. That's correct. Was it your desire? Did you have a desire or were you kind of thrown into it? I don't have a memory of not wanting to play at that age or anything. I, um, I mean, like I remember when my brother was taking piano lessons and I was still too little and I would just get up at the top of the piano and try to like hit keys. But I think everyone does that. Very annoying younger brother. Sure. Did you enjoy piano when you were learning it? I think so. It's hard to say. Like, I don't remember my childhood that well. It wasn't the worst, but it wasn't certainly wasn't the best. So there, I just don't really remember it that, that well. So like early on, like I remember, what I remember with piano is when I figured out some some tune that required an offbeat rhythm. Like, you know, it's been a long time since I thought about this. And when like I could play through those measures and it and it stayed in the rhythm, it was like my first time like like actually locking into a, a pulse and a rhythm. I remember that, and that would be really excited about that. Well, and then in general, I like puzzles, so I I just think that I naturally just took to the piano as like a puzzle thing. I have a, some kind of math 
in me. So I think I think all that just sort of like made it a challenge that that was worthwhile for me. But with my brother one day on, on a little keyboard, he showed me this thing he wrote. And I was like, oh my God, you can do that? You can write stuff on the piano? That was what really set it all off for me. I am a singer and a musician, but I do understand how important math is now that you mentioned math. Yeah, it's like there's a lot of numbers, especially the piano. The piano, the piano is like a number grid and with like overlapping sort of sets of numbers. And when you can see it, when you can see one key as like a couple different numbers, different relationships, you unlock all these patterns. And that's how you really, that's how you learn to play the piano with your head down, not, not sheet music, but with your head down at it, you start to, you start to see how these patterns work. It's all number related. What did your parents think about you wanting to be a musician? I had support. It was, it was very, it was made clear to me that I could do anything I wanted to do. And that, and that my, my father, who's like a math educator, a math consultant, he travels around teaching math and trying to improve math education. And he like, he could not love it more. He loves it so much. He's so passionate about it. So it was always told to me that you do, you do what you love. And so I, I didn't really think about anything else. My mom who died when I was young, but she was uh, an artist, a visual artist who was accepted. And someone said that I had said this, and I don't really remember, but it sounds familiar, I guess. In like sixth grade, it was like, what do you want to be when you grow up? And my answer was a starving artist. So I guess that, I guess that was allowed, I guess. So yeah, so I definitely had that support. I went to a liberal arts college in Connecticut, Wesleyan University, which is in my hometown, and got to study music further and a wide range of things. Got to stay, stay with music. And that's where I really discovered my love of uh, music history. I do have to congratulate you for the educational and historical performance that you have on YouTube from from the Jalopy Theater because there's definitely an educational foundation to it and you do a fantastic job in that performance. Thank you very much. That's like something that I have been thinking like a long time about it's like try to how to well, first, how to just understand this music and where where it sits, and you know, and then how to how to talk about it. And I find these solo shows. If you're playing solo piano, you can make it engaging. It's hard though, and so I find giving this story, especially knowing that like, nobody knows this story, and this music has so little context that to be able even just to have that opportunity to have 90 minutes to sit and give like a talk with a piano was amazing, and just so grateful for that opportunity at Jalopy Theater, which is an awesome venue in Red Hook, Brooklyn, that really, for over a decade now, has just been a great beacon of folk art and folk music. There was a really nice balance between your contact, conversation, and the way it was all structured, the research I'm sure that you did. I imagine it's not a research that you did strictly for this performance, but the research that went into it and the structure is very impressive. Now, if I told you it was mostly off the cuff would that change your feeling of it <laughs> it would not it would actually allow me to admire you even more <laughs> so i knew how i wanted to start i knew how i wanted to tell the story but there are different branches you can go and you can tell it so many different ways there's a lot about boogie woogie in that and 
And it just sort of worked out that way, that that's just how the story ended up being told. You know, a lot about that importance of, of Boogie Woogie and that emergence, and then sort of followed the timeline of, of recorded history. And um, and so it was, it was really fun. And, and uh, you know, been a year later, and I haven't gotten to do another show like it and uh, or talk to anyone. So I had to listen back today just to see, like, you know, where, where my brain was at when I when it was working. If it was off the cuff, it was very well elaborated. <laughs> it's it's like stuff that I've thought about. And there's, the whole journey for me has been to try to learn as much as I can, like just gobble it up, gobble up these piano players and their sound and their styles and trying to capture that. And then it's been like these nagging questions that have come with trying to understand this thing that isn't well talked about or described that you can't find in every blues history book. You know, in the story, it's like, try to, how do you, how do you put this story together? And that's sort of been the, the process. And when I was first learning this stuff and I was playing it out, nobody knew, nobody knew what I was playing in New York. Nobody knew what Boogie Woogie was. Well, why is that? You know, why doesn't anyone know what this super important, you know, roots of rock and roll. Like, how could nobody know what this is? How did that make you feel? Oh, it made me feel super excited because I could try to figure it out. Like that sort of research element of it, that the idea that's like, I can try to figure out something that's not on Google. And even this time, there wasn't, all this music wasn't on YouTube yet. Like it mostly is now. I looked up some of the Barrel House Blues and I found very, very little. Yeah. It's a story that's not told. So there's that question of like, why doesn't anyone know what Boogie Woogie was? Firstly, the way blues is taught is like this story of like the folk guitar story. How, and it starts with Charlie Patton and Robert Johnson in the Delta, and then it goes right to Chicago. And so it sort of misses all this other 20s and 30s urban blues. And then you look at ragtime history and jazz history and and, and ragtime, usually you, you can learn that ragtime goes to like Jelly Roll Morton and the Harlem Stride guys like James P. Johnson and, and how they influence Art Tatum and Thelonious Monk and you create that straight line. And so you've created these two great storylines of music, but they leave out barrel house piano. They leave out really important aspects of this music not as, as two separate things but, but as that thing together no one knows what boogie woogie is because it's gotten taught as this footnote in music history it's not connected to its folk piano roots which are so interesting and so deep and so worthy of study so it's this one party trick from these three piano players you can listen to the one sound and uh, honestly it's not that interesting you can love it I love it. So I love it too. But if it's your only way you can hear this music, it, it gets tiresome pretty quick, man. And then they leave out St. Louis. Nobody like nobody talks about the history of St. Louis blues, which is all piano based. What I discovered was people don't know what boogie woogie is because people don't know the, 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 the whole anything about barrel house blues or all this really important and popular music from the 20s and 30s. Like, there's just nothing to connect it. I personally love Boogie Woogie. When I researched Boogie Woogie a few years ago, I found that there was very little about Boogie Woogie. What really stuck out to me was I read somewhere that Boogie Woogie was only popular for a very short period of time. Boogie Woogie doesn't have a big repertoire. 
Barrel House Blues, on the other hand, I know absolutely nothing about. And it just shows that, like, the story you tell, the history you tell has consequences. And so, like, if you if you tell a history that leaves something out, like, it'll disappear and it'll be gone. Because plenty of people every day, just, like, discover what you do. I like Boogie Woogie. Or they discover, like, you know, I really like Mississippi John Hurt or, like, Robert Johnson. So what is old blues about? Let me either get this book or read a Wikipedia thing or whatever. And no matter how much they love that sound, the, the chances are it will not take them to a piano player. They will never learn about a piano player from that time. And if and it's the same thing. If you learn about ragtime, you'll never learn about Herschel Thomas, you know, playing the suitcase blues in 1925. Or, you know, if you discover you love Louis Armstrong, you're not going to, you're not going to hear, you know, what little brother Montgomery was doing. And and so it's all gone. Like if you, if you like Jerry Lee Lewis, you can, you can take it back to a, the boogie woogie players, but that's only going to take you to 1939, which is honestly, which is when this music became popular music you know, for white people, basically. But in the African-American community, this music had, hadn't been prevalent for like 10 years. Let's define your your genre or your area of expertise. Mm-hmm. What what genre of music would you would you say is your brand or your title? Barrel House Blues. What does the word barrel house mean? <laughs> a barrel house. Well, barrel house is a noun and a verb, so you can barrel house. It's an adjectiving of barrel house and woman. So a barrel house basically was like an old rickety barn that they turn into a bar say you say so like one of the easiest ways to picture it is so you you're down in like the texas louisiana area in the in the piney woods and you have you, you're working at a sawmill chopping wood all day and then so you're out in secluded woods and then they take the barn and they turn it into a bar and they serve whiskey right from the barrel and they have chalk you can drink the stuff the chalk that'll you know knock you knock you right out and it was sort of these places that that this rough and ready music got its name barrel house blues barrel house blues so it's it's a type of blues that was please correct me if i'm wrong it's a type of blues that was created or, or, or carried out in a barrel house yeah in a barrel house and and the like you know like juke joints and you know other work camps and clubs and, and the like so you know not, not just there but that's sort of how it's come to be can we say that barrel house blues, the concept is very rustic, unrefined, the people's type of music? Yes, it's low class. I mean, it's, it's very working class, you know, music. So if you were a, a middle class African-American, you didn't like this music any more than a white guy. It, it was it was low class, working class music. So one of my friends likes to think about his name is Peter Lumberg, great musician and musicologist from Sweden. And he likes to think of Barrel House as like an undercurrent through everything that that ragtime first emerged as like a, a Barrel House music. And then it became domis, domesticated and such. And then you know the Barrel House current ran underneath and then Barrel House blues emerged. And it was like, so it was like, it's sort of this undercurrent of working class. It's interesting because there are some very refined ragtime tunes. Yeah, you think about Joseph Lamb and American Beauty Rag and all the Joplin stuff. I mean, Joplin stuff is as, you know, you can hear how that man studied Schubert and, and, and all that other just beautiful old cla- you know, classical music, just how perfect his voice leading is. 
and the Barrel House Blues. I like your explanation. The Barrel House Blues is, is kind of under all of this, and and it becomes it becomes popular, it becomes rock and roll. Yep. And it's like you ask you got you'd ask guys in the '60s, you know, who still were still alive, you know, that were doing this music in the '30s. All there, you know, there's there's no more sound. There's no more, you know, there's, no one's playing this music anywhere anymore. But he'll be like, back in the '30s, uh, we were doing all. Ain't nothing happening now that wasn't happening then. There were interviews with guys in the '60s, and they're ta- saying that nothing happening now that wasn't happening in the '30s. You know, nothing on the piano, no rock and roll, no like. You talk about Ray Charles, Jerry Lewis, all that stuff. They're like, we were doing all that stuff in the '30s, and it's like they were. They really were. This is like where it was happening. Do you consider yourself an expert in barrel house blues? Very. That's like an interesting question. I think yes. I mean, I do. I mean, I really think that I've put in the work in the study that like I have like an expert knowledge of it. But when it comes to playing piano, I'm not a master yet. And I, and I shouldn't be, you know, but like that road to mastery, I'm on it, you know, and, and I, and if I can stay this diligent, I could get there. So I would consider myself an expert in barrel house blues and working on becoming a master. Can we say you would consider yourself a master or an expert at barrel house blues, the subject, but maybe the musicianship might need a little bit of more polishing. Is that what I'm getting? I mean, yeah, music, I mean, the, the piano is an unforgiving, unrelenting, instrument it's so difficult and it always reminds you of what you can't do you know and as soon as you can do something you're on to the next thing so yeah that process is never ending i mean like i believe i'm a concert level pianist that i can play this music you know on a concert level on a stage nice to to have gotten to that level i've noticed in some of your videos you have the upper front board from your upright piano removed and what's very interesting about that is that it, it looks really cool, first of all. Like you get to see the guts of the piano, and you get to see the little hammers that are banging up on the strings inside. Is this strictly aesthetic, or is it for acoustic reasons also? At home, it's aesthetic. You know, it's just like fun to take the front off the video with the dancing hammers. It's, it's fun to watch. For this kind of music, which is so percussive, you really want that cut coming right at you so with the front off it just you just get washed out with it you know and so for someone who just like wants to get rowdy and wants to feel the percussiveness in every hit and feel it cut through the the no no front on is like the way to go do you as a musician do you feel the vibrations differently when you remove the upper front board yeah, it just comes at you. It's all, it's like, it's, it's, and, and you get, you also hear all the creaks and crones and all the, you hear everything that's going on, but you really it just, you get the attack and it's not muffled. You get like a, a softer tone generally with the, with the front on. This really is fascinating. I love talking about this with you. <laughs> I'm learning so much. All right, let's shift gears a little bit and let's talk about the history. Let's talk about the actual history of of Barrel House Blues with some examples. Are you okay with that? Yes. So like, um, you know, and I'm not an expert on ragtime, but in 1899, the Maple Leaf Rag comes out, Scott Joplin's piece. And within a year or two, it's, it's, it's the bestseller. It's uh, everyone wants it, you know, everyone's playing it and, and it sets off, you know, the ragtime craze, which is like basically, you know, March type music with a, syncopated rhythm a, a never-ending syncopated rhythm 
and it becomes the sound of America. And so, you know, pieces like Maple Leaf Rag, uh, you know, it's a great example of that. It's still to this day, you know, the most perfect rag. I mean, it's hard, it's hard to, it's hard to name a better one. Could we listen to your rendition of Maple Leaf Rag? Yeah, let's listen to it. Let's give it a go. And this is from the Jalopy Theater performance from, uh, was posted on February 7th, 2020. I'll have the link down below so anyone can, anyone interested can, can watch the entire performance. So tell us a little about what we just listened to. Yeah, so I think for our purposes, because we're trying to get to Barrel House Blues, I think what you can really hear from that performance is my stomp, that very strong, and that that, that it's giving that really strong sense of, of two-beat music. Bump, 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 bump. One and one and two. And so it kind of, you, you really hear that uh, one and two and one and two and which is a big part of, of the ragtime music and sort of what would happen after that is it would turn to more of a four beat one two three four kind of feel so when the earliest blues is starting to emerge and the, the its origins are not known but we, we think sometime you know in the aughts that this this sort of folk style blues starts to emerge where using honestly a lot of that some of that ragtime language but there starts to be, you know, bluesed up note, the third gets, gets lowered and, and it becomes a simple 12 bar form and, uh, you know, to be sung over. And so that starts to, that starts to emerge. In the early teens, W.C. Handy publishes the, the Memphis blues and follows that up with the St. Louis blues. And these become big hits. And what it is, is he, he heard those folk melodies, you know, in the South and in St. Louis. And he took these these folk blues melodies and he basically put them in familiar forms. And the familiar forms at this point are ragtime and the popular song. And a lot of those popular songs have ragtime feel, you know, that, 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 that's a mix, but that's about, about his form, you know, chorus and verse kind of thing. And so he takes these blues strains and he puts them into ragtime and song forms and People start to discover the blues. The St. Louis blues becomes a huge hit, and it's a it's a blues form with a with a tango rhythm chorus, a, a verse, a minor minor tango, and then the the chorus is a is the blues, and so that takes this music that was really happening as sort of a folk southern folk song tradition, and it makes it. Um, popular it becomes a popular blues tradition, and so a lot of this music. A lot of understanding barrel house blues and is is about like that mix of popular blues versus folk blues. Popular stuff is getting churned out by W.C. Handy and his publishing house, and then Tin Pan Alley in New York. They're 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 churning this stuff out, and so Memphis blues really sums up that earliest iteration of of blues where it's still ragtime. And Tremblin' blues kind of shows some of the early folk blues stylings. 
So let's go ahead and give Memphis Blues uh, a go. It's from 1912. Is that correct? Memphis Blues from 1912. This is Ethan Line One's rendition of Memphis Blues. So walk us through what we just heard. What you're hearing there is a, bl a blues form uh, introduced into one of the strains of what is essentially a, a ragtime song. So so here's that language starting to creep in, but it still very much feels and would have been played like ragtime, which is that it was still a two-beat feel and, and a straight, straight eighth note, not a, not a swung eighth note thing. So that's sort of what's happening on one end in this in the teens, and on the other end is the influences of of the early barrel house players who who came up in the ragtime tradition and who were still had that stride language, but were starting to add their own little twists and turns into this music. And a lot of these guys wouldn't be recorded, but they'd be remembered by the fellas who were born say 1906 1905 you know and, and even a little later so these guys at 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 12 13 would have heard these piano players and so you know probably my favorite tune of all time is the trembling blues by well it's originally by a fellow named cooney vaughn who's from mississippi and regarded as one of the great piano players of mississippi and 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 a piano player lived a long life, was born in 1906. Little brother Montgomery heard him as a kid and he retained this piece. So, I mean, it's probably got a little or a fair amount of little brother in it, but it's, but it's, but it speaks to an earlier tune and an earlier type of style. And this is sort of like one of the early folk blues traditions, you know, that was happening around the deep South. And uh, so this is, it's the trembling blues. Let's go ahead and give that a go so we can follow along with you. You know, now there's a, a four beat pulse. I'm, I'm stomping my foot. One, two, three, four. And instead of playing these multi-strain pieces like what we've been playing before, Maple Leaf or, or, or Memphis Blues, this is just one blues chorus, a 12 bar blues repeated over and over again with these little embellishment moves, you know, that are, that are starting to creep into this kind of music, but really just a beautiful melody. You know, it's just like it's all you could ask for. But now we're getting into the realm of music people don't play or know about. So you know the ragtime they knew. W.C. Handy is, is you know is, is known. St. Louis blues obviously is really well known. Um, but um, 
like once you get into this area this is sort of like the forgotten music that that's not you're not going to hear that at a uh, well unless i'm there or traditionally you're not going to hear that at a ragtime festival just too bluesy and or you're not going to hear it at a any kind of jazz or boogie woogie festival i have to agree it it doesn't feel like ragtime and it's not quite yet boogie woogie but it does have a very underlying blues feeling to it yes certainly does and so this is earthy that's what i really love i just like that really earthy plaintive sound you know where you can where there's a there's a simplicity there to you know just to try to extract everything you can from can we talk a little about the vicksburg blues or the 44 blues it's a very interesting story that you share on on the jalopy theater performance where you talk about the people take something their their community their life and they manifested in musical form could you speak a little to that yeah so this is one of my favorite topics the 44 blues i think it speaks so much about what this music is all about and how to understand it and actually at the when i attended the in-person west coast ragtime festival a few years back i did a whole seminar on this just this song what you have in the 44 blues is like basically 44 the 44 blues is a piano instrumental from the early 20s and maybe even before that but like we'll say like we'll say 1920 and it was formed down in the Vicksburg area by a group of pianists none of them would have been older than 18 but like we're talking like 14 to 18 year old these young kids who from their first experiences of music you know as like 10 year old eight or eight year old is blues is from not just the St. Louis blues and that popular music, but also those folk traditions like Cooney Vaughn. They're hearing all this, and this is the music they're absorbing that's becoming their youth music. And so it's like in their hands that Barrel House Blues is really going to be formed, you know, by these young kids staking claim to the blues and then staking claim to like their way of playing it, their trick move, and that they would sort of develop together, but that they could use to have like an insider kind of thing. And so 44 was a local train, a super local train in, in Mississippi. It ran for about a few years, like 1917 to 1921, between Vicksburg and small town Belzoni. Calling some of the 44s was like becoming, was like a way to just like claim it as a super local thing. So here's this tune that starts way back then. So little brother Montgomery is one of the guys who helped form this, but he showed it to another guy who showed it to another guy, Roosevelt Sykes, who recorded it first, you know, and then people learned his recorded version while 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 other versions were still happening. And then Eric Clapton records the song eventually even, you know, the song Howlin' Wolf there, there's great version of the song, but it, it had a long, long life because it was popular from its first recording in 1929. But it goes back to the beginning of this music. And it's got this great sort of rolling left-hand sound, sort of this single corded chiming uh, right hand move it's sort of like a train sort of like a train imitation and it's uh, you know everybody played it differently some people put words to it some people it was instrumental but it was like really the sound you hear in the deep south let's just take a minute if you don't mind i would like to share a little bit of an explanation that you give about the the left hand roll and it's from that same performance and if you don't mind i'd like to just play the explanation that you give in the recording so that we we can all follow along with, with some examples. Are you okay with that? Absolutely. Yeah, this, this sort of idea of these great little rolls instead of, you know, what was before, just a strict stride or things, you know, you have these. And 
kind of hitting, hitting the piano fast, sort of doing some train imitation stuff. But the idea is, so it's called the 44. So the 44 is... So that's a great explanation. And congratulations on, on such a great explanation and examples about the, the role. Can we listen to now, after having heard that explanation, can we listen to your rendition of the Vicksburg or 44 Blues? Yes, and just as long as the people at home go and there's a video of Little Brother Montgomery playing it a little later in life. So I just really recommend that people go check out um, his version or Roosevelt Sykes version and then hear kind of, you know, how those guys played it. Even Lee Green, that hear how these other guys played it to get a real sense of the variations of it. Because mine is sort of like a mashup. It's really worth hearing the guys sing the tune. Great. I'll go ahead and put a link to that below. That way we can all take a look at, at what what your influencers sounded like. That's what I that's what I want. I mean, I want people to to know these guys. Perfect. Let's give your rendition a go. tell you something i just got the chills thank you (laughs) (laughs) i mean that 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 song is is deep and it's powerful and um and and then you can see that sort of like um you know it's not this melodic thing like you were hearing again in in the ragtime or even some of that folk blue stuff it's like it's a rhythm you know it's a it's a rhythmic feeling and it's like these two hands like kind of working together and 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 opposite and that's what this that's that's going to be the the trend that this music takes is going to be about more and more different kinds of, of left-hand rhythms and different kind of variations you can get with your right hand. You know, there's not going to be, this music is not going to move into a place of, of complex harmony. And it's like, it's, it's just going to go in that other direction of groove and groove and groove. The fascinating thing of this all is that I can hear the train. Yes. I mean, the train was big and they were, they were hopping it and they were riding it. And like, you know, something I like to say a lot is like when, when we think about blues, we think about that ubiquitous shuffle, dun, 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 you know, and we say like, well, there's a example, like they got that from the train, you know, and, and, but if you listen to the earlier music of like the twenties that were actually doing train imitations, they were much more violent. And there was like, a, like, you know, because these guys were hopping the train and riding it. It wasn't like a train in the distance. It was like this very palpable thing. And you can hear in songs like the 31 Blues or you know, Lucky Robert stuff. You know, you really feel that train. It's almost a visceral effect. Exactly. Correct. And it would have been for them. That was their relationship with it. Let's uh, talk a little bit about Boogie Woogie now. Okay. So Boogie Woogie. Now the, the. The cool thing to understand is that when you're talking about Boogie Woogie from the 20s and early 30s, you're talking about Barrel House Blues. Boogie Woogie is a is 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 a rhythmic component in in Barrel House Blues. 
when it becomes popular in the later 30s, it sort of has at this point taken on more of a feel uh, contemporary with that day, which is the swing feel. So it really speaks more of, of a swinging of a swing language. So when you think about the big three of Boogie Woogie, Albert Ammons, Mead Lux Lewis, Pete Johnson, they're really coming at it from a swing piano perspective, even though they they, they learned it all, you know, from, from this earlier days. But that's the important thing is like early Boogie Woogie is just a form of barrel house blues when it all starts and goes. But it's like keeping steady rhythms with your left hand. And again, it's all about that rhythmic drive. Great. We have your performance, uh, the Jalopy Theater performance of Pint Hops, Boogie Woogie. So he was the first guy who gave the, who coined the term Boogie Woogie in a song. You know, it's not to say he invented that term, but this is where, this is why we call Boogie Woogie, Boogie Woogie. piece like you know like if you're at a you know ragtime if you're if you're learning ragtime or if you're at a ragtime festival right everyone can play the maple leaf rag everyone learned that first and we'll play that uh that's that tune in the boogie woogie world this is pine tots boogie woogie also called boogie woogie stomp as it was recorded by albert ammons his masterpiece so everybody plays that tune so when i hear that i can just think about all the guys who can just blow my socks off with their renditions of that tune <laughs> could we talk a little bit about the different types of blues that exists. I think uh, you mentioned there was a, a New Orleans style, a Texas style, St. Louis. Yeah. So like, so again, it's like, you're not going to really find it too much group this way, but yeah, different, different regions had different styles. There was a distinct sound in particularly East Texas, uh, around, around Houston and Galveston area that we call the Santa Fe group. And they traveled on a Santa Fe train and they have a, a real ragtimey virtuosic sound. And, um, and then there's a sound in St. Louis that we call lowdown, you know, or that I call lowdown, you know, that has like more of a, a sparse, you know, the left hand is not very active. It's more of just hitting a, a quarter note steady beat. There's like that, that the 44s and the influence you can hear of that all, all across the deep south. So Boogie Woogie itself sort of petered out as its, as its, as, as its own thing, even though it got picked up in rockabilly, rock and roll, you know. Western swing, everything down in New Orleans, you know, a guy like Professor Longhair would would take those boogie woogie ideas, add those rumba rhythms and and create the, the New Orleans rhythm and blues sound, which is so sweet. So you do have a rendition of the, a New Orleans style. I believe it's called Tipitina. Indeed, Tipitina's. And as I, I my brother was at this show, so I had to play it for him. It's his favorite song. I'm particularly interested in, in hearing Tipitina and your your kind of explanation about the rhythm. Should we give it a go? Let's do it. All right. Mm -hmm. 
very cool. I hear it. Hmm. Yeah, that stuff, and you can see it's 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 much more modern sound. I mean, it's 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 certainly more well known than any of the other stuff I play, and um, and it's awesome. <laughs> one more, one other thing that I'd like to talk about is at least give an example of is the low down St. Louis style. Yes, I mean, and, and I, this is a very important you know sound for me. You know, it it it's what brought me to St. Louis. You know, and discover. You know, now it's my whole life, you know, the community that I've, you know, met here and people I get to play music with and get to, you know, talk about this, this music. So it was just so absent from the storyline, whether you're talking about Boogie Woogie, you know, I read these Boogie Woogie books and, 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 and I just think like everyone's missing the point. And, and I read these blues history books and I'm like, everyone's missing St. Louis. Like, how is nobody talking about St. Louis, which was, you know, which turned out superstars in the thirties, Petey Wheatstraw. Roosevelt Sykes, Walter Davis, these great piano players and these awesome blues singers. And and they were so popular in their day and yet nobody talks about them anymore. Nobody remembers these 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 guys. So coming here and 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 connecting with that history and seeing that that this town has more memory for old piano blues than anywhere else. We had guys like for instance, in, in St. Louis, there was a, a blues musician named Henry Townsend. And Henry Townsend first recorded in 1929 and then recorded for eight straight decades before passing away in 2006. He could play the old St. Louis style piano and guitar. And 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 he kept this tradition alive. Roosevelt Sykes, you know, lived lived till the eighties. We had a, a guy um, who could play in the Texas style, you know, that lived into the 2000s, probably the last Texas player. So you had, and we had Johnny Johnson, um, Chuck Berry's piano player, who's alive till 2001. So you have all this great piano history and, and, and people know about it. So when I came here to play, it was the first time ever where people would be like, oh man, that's not even Boogie Woogie, right? That's the earlier stuff. Like they, they, they could place it in context because they got to hear these guys. And so St. Louis had a very distinct um, piano sound and it was like the main town for piano players back in the day. And it, and it came out of ragtime because ragtime history runs to the very beginning here in St. Louis with Tom Turpin. And Tom Turpin was the first African-American to publish a rag. And, you know, so, so you, you had this just great piano tradition here. And so connecting with it, getting to play this music in its hometown, getting to feel the, the bricks, getting to feel it in the bricks, you know, and add to it has been an awesome thing. I do have a question about the term lowdown. Is this yeah. something you coined yourself? It's, it's certainly not my phrase. You know, they, people describe, you know, music, uh, blues as lowdown. I just think of it as the, the best way to describe this style of piano because it has this, this sinking feeling. And then you, then there's like this sort of unexpected brightness and beauty that kind of lifts it the other way. So it's sort of sinking you and, you know, raising you up at the same time is that beautiful, subtle, like a rich thing that's so hard to, to get right. And so, you know, I don't know like where I heard it from. I certainly don't think I made it up. I mean, I know I didn't make it up, but it's really the term that I use to describe that sort of St. Louis 20s and 30s sound, you know, that urban piano sound. Wonderful. Let's give it a go if you're okay with that. Sure.
So you hear that sort of low down feel, bum, 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 bum. That sort of drives through the whole thing. You know, it's like it, it's, it just sits there in it. Love it. Again, I find you to be an extremely skilled and gifted musician. Thank you for your gift of music. I really appreciate that. Like I'm, I'm all about those feelings. You know, I just wanted to feel that way. Like, you know, you know, it just make you feel a certain thing. <laughs> I'm glad when it works. It works. <laughs> it works. And you did, uh, we did talk about one other song, the suitcase blues. Yeah. So I think if you really, there, there are two, there are two pieces that I think best describe and showcase what barrel house blues was about. One was from 1925 and the, both these guys were born in 1906 so Herschel Thomas born in 1906 records the suitcase blues in 1925 and in it you can hear the barrel house sounds of Texas of the deep south and of Chicago it's all in there because he was, he was this young hotshot kid whose older brother uh, was a was a well-known composer and a publisher in a publishing house in New Orleans. So through these connections and just, you know, being what he was, he was sort of like the, the first hot shot. And he lived in, so he lived in Houston area and in the New Orleans area, and then came up to Chicago. And he showed all these guys sort of like book, what Boogie Woogie was about. He was a really important thing. And so in 1925, you can hear this recording of him. And he, first he starts off with some Chicago moves, then he does some Texas stuff. And then he does like some 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 of that deep south, like that 44 blues. And you can hear that he just like picked it all up and you know, who knows, you know, what he picked up and what he, you know, made up himself. But that's the sense you get that it's like all his moves in a suitcase. And then another guy born in 1906 is little brother Montgomery. And in his Ferris Street Jive, which was recorded in 1936, decade later, and you can kind of hear how much more Boogie Woogie has gotten into the barrel house sound. So he's, he mixes choruses and he'll go from more of a stride to a, to a walk, to a roll and all those things. So those are two great examples of just like Barrel House Blues, which is just chorus after chorus of 12 bar blues with never ending variations of rhythm and groove ideas. So before we, before we listen to uh, your rendition of suit, Suitcase Blues, Tell us what should we be paying attention to, or what, what is it, what's something that we you would like us to take considerable note of? So that's a great question. I'm so glad you asked that. Um, and and um, so what I think you should listen to is like how the left hand, the bass line, keeps changing um, from more stride and and sort of these broken tents into into a, like a like a shuffle kind of move and then the roll so you're gonna hear three distinct left hands through, through like uh, and feels through through this piece so i would say listen to that and how how that makes you feel great let's give it a go
Wonderful. I could I I, I could hear it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, then you when you when we when you get to the forty four parts, you'll you'll really hear how 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 that fits in. With with these examples, with these little samples, we can definitely hear everything. So shifting gears a little bit again, I would like to talk about what it's like to be a musician uh, as as a profession. Uh, well, I mean, right now it's pretty boring. <laughs> but well, I mean, except for all the time to practice you know, at the moment. I've been able to make it work. You know, it helps to be just a piano player and uh, and because you can do solo work, which is comes in handy when you don't have to divide the check up. But I also, you know, have lots of projects in St. Louis. I'm a part of three or four. I have one that I play in the most mischievously in the Yass Yass Boys. And we do the, the again, the 20s and 30s blues, but stuff with the, with a bigger band. So we have bass and horns, singer and um uh, washboard guitar you know we'll, we, we, we 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 dive into the obscure uh jazz and blues repertoire stuff i have a band called the bottle snakes which is a piano guitar duo and we do like sort of the old the old stuff but also you know do a lot of composition and stuff like that plus you know a bunch of other i love playing piano guitar stuff so i play with with other guys like that and so there's, there's a lot of work to piece it together or there was you know before this so it's like you know working a, a ton probably even more than i want to has the pandemic reshaped the way you make music yes i mean the pandemic has reshaped the whole thing so for musicians like myself who perform almost nightly your practice and your performance are really linked and your oftentimes your performance is just a step in the process of your practice so when you take out the performance you really your your whole practice sort of it has to be reimagined. And so like for me, like, to, you know, I practice a lot of classical piano and, uh, and things like that, just to keep, just, just to keep trying to grow. And then when I do shows or like live stream concerts, you know, on, on Facebook, which I've been really grateful for when, if, when this first started, I was like, I don't want to do that. And then as soon as I did one, I was like, Oh my God, like it allows you to get to that place as a musician where you're just like in the song and trying to do the song as best you can. And, you know, you're going to have to start it and end it. And like, so just to, to live in it and then, you know, to have stuff be like, oh, if I practice this this week, I can play it at my live stream. That was been, that's been really, really good. Well, thanks to the pandemic, I was able to, to see you perform for the first time. And now we're doing this, this podcast episode. Exactly. There's definitely like, there's definitely been blessings in it. I was gigging most nights of the week. So just to, just to stop for a minute. It was really good to get in touch with, again, what I love about this stuff and to just, you know, try to get better. I've been, I've been really, you know, more or less grateful for it. This may be a little bit of a difficult question, but do you feel that you've reinvented yourself since the pandemic? I've sort of resisted the urge to feel like I had to go in a whole new direction. Or it's like, oh, I better start doing this now, and I better start doing this now because of because because of the pandemic, you know. And I, so in in some ways, I've doubled down on what I am. I've gone extra hard to say, no, I'm a piano player. Like that's what I've been working on for the last year, being a piano player. So I think a lot of musicians are going to come out of this with a little more self consciousness and self awareness, and like that inner thing, you know, which 
you know, a lot of times you, you work on pushing it outwards and that hasn't really been the case. So it's all been going in. So I think you're going to see like a lot of very introspective musicians at, at the end of this. I know I, I have gone through that, but right now it's like come full circle and I'm just like, just ready to give and, and, and throw it out there. People who, who have a day job, who music was their release. I feel like they're feeling this loss almost more than I am because I'm like, kind of appreciate the break in, you know, in certain ways, you know, I didn't need it. it. It was the thing that was destroying my balance, not maintaining it. Every, I guess they're the old saying is right. Every cloud has a silver lining. <laughs> indeed. Indeed. I guess, but definitely ready for it to be over. And I'm ready for it to be over. I'm ready to perform. I'm ready to sing. Yeah, man. Without a mask on in front of a, a an audience, a live audience instead rather well i think that's all the questions that i have is there something you'd like to add or something you'd like to share with us i just if you want to hear this music i mean i think listen to little brother montgomery and listen to pd wheatstraw i think those are the two names i'd want to give um they're very different really really cool singing voices little brother montgomery sung in like a with this with this very distinct vibrato and uh and sort of like a with a, with a highish highish voice not not falsetto but but high pd wheatstraw who influenced a generation of singers robert johnson not the least of which has this sort of yodel moan that he does a who well well that he kind of puts out that is like haunts you to your bone if you listen to don't feel welcome by 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 him and you just listen to him just like sort of you know almost you can barely understand the words he says it's like half mumbling but it's just like it's devastating how good it is and so like and and, and both of them their piano playing little brother montgomery is one of the great masters of all time pd wheatstraw had a sort of one way he could play you know but it, but it, there's so much haunting beauty and weird sounds he gets out of it and subtle and awesome and so i'd say like you know like li- li- try to listen to those guys to give you a little taste of it you know and then from there you'll have you hopefully you can find like Jimmy Yancey. See, once I start talking, I just want to encourage people to, to listen to and hear and hear, listen to Jimmy Yancey. He would be the third one and just could play the, the most poetic piano blues you could think of. And, um, and uh, yeah. So what, that's about it. What I'll go ahead and do is I'll at the bottom of, uh, I'll add some links and to all of these musicians, these three musicians that you talked about, singers, musicians, I'll add a link to your YouTube channel so that we can all listen to your, your performances and your different renditions of Barrel House Blues. Awesome. Ethan Linewood. Thank you, Ethan Linewood, for sharing your trajectory with Barrel House Blues, your love, your passion, and most of all, your beautiful gift of music. Thank you so much for having me. Ethan Linewood was this episode's guest. His musical talent, coupled with his passion for preserving the disappearing barrelhouse blues music genre, are a true gift to the preservation of American music. It is musicians like Ethan that keep music alive. Line One shared with us the importance of barrelhouse blues in the timeline of the Great American Songbook. We learned how ragtime evolved into barrel house blues in the South, which later bifurcated into two important musical genres, 
one being the blues as we know them today, and the other boogie-woogie, which later became rock and roll. Ethan Lindwund is much more than a great musician. He is a musical historian that loves to share his research and findings. Perhaps his idiosyncratic musical and historical interests will inspire other musicians and singers to really explore the music that really calls to them, in spite of how unpopular or demode it may be. The idea of sitting at an old-style pub enjoying a cool craft ale with Ethan playing Barrelhouse Blues is thrilling. I invite you to follow Ethan's YouTube channel. He is constantly uploading new material, including songs and tutorials. Currently, he is working on a new record, scheduled to be released soon. All of his records are available via his website. Ethan is also diligently working on tutorial lessons available online. The links to these three resources are available below. Please stay in touch with our podcast. We are working on bringing you great content like the interview today. Content apt for a culturally sensitive audience. I am pleased to close this podcast with Ethan Lineone's own musical composition, Low Down Boogie Woogie. My name is Napoleon, and this has been Cultural Cue, the point of convergence of art, culture, and society.